Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. So this is part two of a podcast series about the book Clean Goat by Robert C. Martin. And in the previous episode, I dove into the first three chapters of the book. And I talked about some background information about Uncle Bob himself. And we discussed chapter two of the book called Meaningful Names, which was all about how to properly name things in code to communicate its intent the best way. And we also checked out chapter three, which was about how to write clean functions that have the correct naming, scope, size, and things like side effects and command query separation were discussed. And in this next episode, we are going to dive into the next two chapters of the book. We are going to look at a chapter about comments, uh, which explains all the best practices towards comments in clean code context. Um, plus, we are going to look at a more aesthetic subject, which is formatting. We will cover why formatting is important and how to properly do horizontal and vertical formatting to make the code read well. So let's dive straight in and continue with the fourth chapter of the book called comments. And on the first page of this chapter, there's a very nice quote that sums it up really nicely. And it says, and I quote, don't comment bad code, rewrite it. <laughs> and I mean, how often have you seen crappy code that is explained by an even crappier comment that are outdated and just flat out wrong? So in this chapter, we are going to take a look at all the advice Uncle Bob gives related to comments in code. There are many kinds of comments that are really bad or unnecessary, but there are also kinds of comments that really do justice to their existence. So let's dive in and see what it has to say, shall we? So Uncle Bob starts off by setting the things straight immediately. He says that nothing can be quite as helpful as a well-placed comment. But on the other hand, nothing can clutter up a file more than a dogmatic comment. And nothing can be quite as damaging as an old comment that propagates lies and misinformation. And he says that comments are at best a necessary evil. And yeah. I think I agree with him. I really dislike comments and code if they are not needed. I've seen lots of code that has like a line of comment and a line of code, then another line of comment and another line of code. So every line of comment is covered by a line of code. So that's just useless. And I know that some teachers in university might even ask students to do it this way, but it's really horrible. But so if you're listening and you're a teacher, please stop doing this because it's most definitely not industry standard, nor is it even best practice. And Uncle Bob says that every comment is in fact a failure of our ability to express ourselves in code. And what he means is that sometimes the code you write is so cryptic and verbose that the only way you can explain what's going on is by adding some comments. So what you should do in this case is try to refactor the code so you can instead express your ideas in code and no longer need the comments. So comments do not make up for bad code. Remember that they do not make up for bad code. And always try to explain yourself in code instead of comments. So if you have, for example, an if statement that checks a condition, like for example, 
if player.speed is greater than zero and player.direction is vector3.left, you should extract out that condition into the player class, for example, and name it something like is moving left. So now, when you want to check for it, you simply call that function in your if statement so it reads like player dot is moving left, which is far better and more intention revealing. And if you do it like this, you probably don't need to add a comment above that if statement that says the code below is checking if the player is moving left. But before we burn all the bad practices about comments, let's talk about what kinds of comments are acceptable and generally good to add in your source code. But always remember that the best comment there is, is the comment you did not have to write. And the first obvious example Uncle Bob gives are those damn massive legal comments you will find on top of many files in many repos. And due to uh, like corporate coding standards, there are sometimes, yeah, these are required for legal reasons. And it's such a shame that we need to go as far as this to add this nonsense in every file. But nonetheless, we need them for legal reasons. And luckily, many IDEs will automatically close these legal comments on the top of files. And thank God for that. Or well, thank JetBrains, for me that is. Uh, you hear that JetBrains? You're a god. <laughs> so yeah, we cannot simply remove these comments because they are required to protect the business. Uh, so we have to live with these, right? Uh, the next acceptable comment is a simple informative comment. And the perfect example of this is the explanation of a regular expression and telling what it does. And I've done this personally many times as well, because no sensible human is able to remember the regex syntax for longer than 24 hours or so. And I've gone even as far as just pasting in the Stack Overflow URL where I found the damn thing in the comment because Stack Overflow is where all regexes are born, right? It's damn ugly, but yeah, when you have some very complex regex, it's very important to have some information about it. And what I also like to do is to cover the regex logic with a shit ton of unit tests to try and express what the regex does by mere testing. So other programmers can look at the unit tests and see what it's supposed to do. But just remember, a simple comment that explains the regex is often not a bad idea. And another type of comment that is generally accepted is the comment that tries to explain the intent of the code. Sometimes just a mere informative comment is not enough and you need to add some rationale, an explanation why the author of the code made this particular choice. And a nice example of this would be, let's say, adding some comment to explain a unit test. I personally don't use fancy mocking frameworks for testing, for example, although you sometimes need to write testing mocks. And mocks are just stubbed out classes that return predictable results for the sake of testing, if you didn't know what mocks were. So in some cases, I'll add some intention revealing comments to these mock classes to better explain why they return or implement the things uh, that are in there. For example, in some particular test case, I need to test certain things of behavior. So I will create a mock and only implement the one function. And in the rest of the functions, I will simply throw like a not implemented exception because I don't touch these functions in my particular test scenario. 
So I'll add some information in the summary of the function to indicate that these functions are not supposed to be called in this test case. And if they were, my test would fail because the not implemented exception will be thrown. So by adding these comments, the chance that there is confusion is re reduced. So let's look at another type of comment that is deemed to be good. And sometimes it is helpful to translate the meaning of some obscure argument or return value into something that's readable. And generally it is better to simply refactor the name of things properly, but when it's in code of some standard library or code you cannot change, you could add a comment that clarifies things. And I'm trying to come up with an example of the Unity 3D API because I know for sure there are a couple of things in there that always are confusing to me or simply really badly named, but I can't really think of something. But I'm sure there is uh, things that have obscure naming. So let me know if there's something in the API that always confuses you. Well, maybe a stupid example is the uh, Unity multimedia request, like the www routines to send HTTP requests, uh, with, uh, which are pretty darn confusing because you're also recommended to use them by, uh, well, for accessing the file system. Um, and are even required to use them if you need to get files from like the streaming assets on uh, Android, like the mobile platform, since you cannot simply access them through the system.io.file uh, API, uh, because they are compiled into the APK or the OBB file. And I've always thought this was particularly confusing, since I like to use the default file or stream APIs for this provided by the system.io library. Uh, using some HTTP workaround hack just seems a little dirty to me, but yeah, it is what it is. And next there's the type of comment that warns for consequences and sometimes I add comments like these in code or in function summaries that are not thread safe, for example. Especially in a Unity 3D context uh, where multi-threading can be a difficult concept to grasp and to start with since most of the Unity 3D API is not thread safe. So when I'm writing some heavy concurrent program but I need to do some potentially dangerous things, I'll add a comment that says that the code you're about to run is not thread safe and thus you must dispatch it to the main thread and then continue on off on an off thread again if you need to. And if you are not familiar with the dispatch pattern, uh, you should Google it for a second. And it's a really nice pattern that can sometimes help you out of difficult uh, like uh, concurrent situations. And the pattern boils down to this. Um, if you have some running code in an off thread and you need to call things from the main thread, like the Unity 3D API, which is only accessible on the main thread, you dispatch a function, like a, a lambda function or just an action object uh, to the dispatcher. And this dispatcher uh, simply implements a concurrent queue and executes the actions within the update loop in Unity. Uh, and thus it is back on the main thread. So you can access the Unity API side of things again. And it's really useful um, in some really tricky situations if you need to. But I also want to warn and give you uh, yeah, like a warning with this particular pattern. And that is that if you use the ditch pattern, pattern, um, you will find uh, that if you have bugs in the system, it is very difficult to debug. 
because uh, your stack traces will always begin in this dispatcher update loop. So, and not in the actual uh, code that started it. So just keep that in mind. Um, well, all, although the same also happens in coroutines sometimes, right? So if you have some errors in a coroutine, you don't uh, you, you don't know what the source is. You really can't find out because it will start at like uh, the the coroutine. But yeah, damn, I got lost there a bit. Uh, we were talking about comments that explain consequences. So I said I sometimes like to add these cases where I warn people of things that might happen. The example Uncle Bob gives in the book is really nice as well. And he has an example in there of a comment that uh, warns of some test case that will be very long to run. Uh, it's a test that generates a really large text file and then tests certain conditions about it. Um, this is uh, very welcome, uh, I guess, um, right? So if you run that test, you you can get some coffee, right? Uh, so the comments uh, warn the developer to not run the test during the development of some feature, but do run it maybe before checking the code in or during regression testing or a CI pipeline, for example. And the next kind of comment that Uncle Bob says that sometimes are good are to-do comments in code. And, well, I heavily disagree with him on this one. I personally think that to-dos are always bad and should just be removed since a to-do most likely turns into a don't-do comment. And I bet you know of some to-do comments in your code base that have been in there for years. So what I do is check who is the author of the to-do comment and send him the code snippet with the comment and tell her or he or him to create a ticket in Jira or whichever ticketing system you are using. And then I just delete the fucking comment, period. To-dos have no place in code, unless it is to remind yourself you need to do something. But once you merge your code in the development or master branches, uh, to-do should be removed, and if there are things that still need to be done, just make tickets for these things, and so you can have them properly tracked and planned and everything. You know, they get in the like in the process of uh, just the management of the project. This way, everyone uh, can see that some things still need to be done, and they can be planned and accounted for. So try to keep your code to-do free, and we have project planning and tracking software for a reason, right? So now there are only two kinds of good comments left. And the first one is a comment that amplifies the importance of something that may otherwise seem inconsequential. And the example in the book is about explaining why a particular string should be trimmed from spaces because else it would be a different uh, like key in a dictionary. Think, for example, uh, you need to convert some JSON or CSV data to a dictionary or a hash table. You must be sure that the keys in the dictionary are correct and that you trim them and maybe cast them to upper or lower, for example. You might just want to add a simple comment in the code that explains why you execute that logic. And the last type of comment that Uncle Bob deems to be acceptable are comments that are used to generate documentation. And in a C-sharp context, these would be the summaries you uh, can add to classes, functions, and field and properties, for example. Uh, you can use this to explain things. So when you run your code to 
through something like uh, Doxygen to generate some uh, documentation. Um, just remember to not add summaries uh, to like an integer duration that says duration. Uh, this is useless and Doxygen is intelligent enough, for example, to generate the exact same uh, function summary for you automatically. So don't make summary comments to be a copy of the thing they summarize. And yeah, I bet you've seen this before, right? Um, there's these mandated comments that are um, just the exact copy of the code. But yeah, there's not much more information in there. So now that we have described some of the good type of comments, we are going to dive into the comments that are simply bad and should always be removed from code. No excuses. And I'll try not to be too pessimistic when talking about them, <laughs> right? Um, and Uncle Bob starts off with a type of comment he says is just mumbling. And the example he gives is some code loading some properties file that is covered by a try catch block. But the catch block does not contain any executable code, yet just a simple comment that says no properties files means the defaults are loaded. But from reading the code in the try, try block, we cannot determine whether the defaults are actually loaded because that functionality is probably in some other function somewhere else. So the developer who wrote this tried to be helpful but made matters worse since we have no idea where the defaults are loaded or how they are supposed to be loaded. And this is what Uncle Bob means by mumbling. Just placing seemingly random comments around in the code that, well, simply confuse people. And the next type of comment is the redundant comment. And I think we glanced at this a bit earlier when we talked about uh, comments that generate documentation. Um, but what Uncle Bob means by this type of comment is the comment that simply restates the code that it is commenting. Like having an integer called duration and then having a comment or summary above it that says the duration or a simple comment above a constructor that says constructor. And it almost feels offensive, doesn't it? I mean, we are programmers, we know how to read and write code. So adding these kinds of comments is totally unnecessary. They don't need to add comments saying that something is a constructor. We are well educated and we will be able to figure things out ourselves, right? But a worse comment would be a misleading comment. I mean, we have probably all seen misleading comments in code, right? And these would be comments that state something about the code, but the code does the complete opposite or simply something totally different. But these comments can sometimes creep into the code unknowingly. Imagine some comment describing an algorithm and the comment maybe describes some function calls and variables or fields. Now, when we refactor the code, we shuffle things and rename things and move things to new classes. And however, the act of refactoring does not edit the comments. And we as programmers will most likely forget to add to edit the comments that describe the algorithm. So after re refactoring, the comment is misleading and probably a lie. So the best thing to do now is delete the comment in my opinion. I mean, it's worthless and misleading now anyways. We refactored the code, things are named different, code is um, maybe extracted to our files or classes and the comment just doesn't make any sense now. And the next type of comment is, well, 
really a funny one, I think, and these are mandated comments. When comments are mandated by some figure who wants them in, you will get many redundant comments in the codebase. I mean, if you are obligated to add summaries all throughout the code, you will run into the situation where you will put a comment that says constructor above the constructor of each class, which is damn useless, just to comply with these mandates, right? And I've seen this in code before, and I've done the exact same thing, trust me, the code would look, wouldn't look any much prettier, and all your files will grow in size uh, a lot, because if you add summaries above every everything that is public, uh, like fields or functions, they will gain at least three more lines, uh, and probably more if you document all the properties of functions, or arguments, I mean. And... The same goes for those comments that have the name of the developer who wrote the damn class. I mean, if we have source code control systems, we can very easily uh, find out who wrote the, the class you're looking at. We don't need those wordless comments at the top of the file that state the original developer's name. And would you add your own name to the list if you added the code? That would make the comment infinitely long, right? And this is a pretty nice segue into the next type of comments that Uncle Bob says are bad, and those are actual journal comments. And I don't think that I've ever seen them in a project, but I can see why they used to be helpful. I know back in the days when they did not have source code control systems, and I mean, Uncle Bob has been going at this for a long time, so I, he has probably seen it all. So these journal comments are comparable to like Git commit messages but back in the days there was no git and thus you needed some other way to communicate changes that the code underwent right but nowadays we don't need this clutter in the code since we have systems like git that track all this stuff for us so if you see these kinds of comment just remove them since they are in git anyway and then again i have never seen like journal comments in code um, in, a, in a unity project for example so there would be like a block of comments at the top of the file that has a name with the changes it did. Um, yeah, these are all in Git nowadays. And yeah, we should use Git uh, to extract this kind of information, I think. And the next kind of comment that Uncle Bob describes are called noise comments. And these are all related to what I have discussed previously for like two times now already. Uh, noise comments are these comments that just state the same thing as they describe. So a comment that says time of day above a variable called time of day is just noise. Just remove the comments. We know what these variables mean. And another thing, uh, what sometimes happened in these kinds of noise or mandated comments is that they are copy pasted around. So this will sometimes lead to variables and fields or functions or classes having incorrect comments since they were copy pasted and yeah not changed yeah we probably all did that right and yeah the next comment that i think we have described earlier as well um is well uncle bob tells you that you should not write uh, a comment for code that you can perfectly extract into a new function and as I said before, uh, always give it your best effort to express yourself in code and try to make the code as readable as you can uh, so you do not need comments to describe what you mean. 
your code must be intention revealing. And this can be hard sometimes, but if you put in that extra effort, uh, your code will be far superior to the code that has not been considered heavily uh, for cleanliness. And the example I gave before about uh, uh, intention revealing code is the is moving left flag of the player class. So there were some conditions that may defined if the player was moving left, but these were just inlined. So if you uh, extract that code out into a function, you can name it and you don't need uh, a comment to describe that logic since you can just uh, name the function uh, correctly and just express the, the action it takes through the naming of the function. The next type of comment uh, we see pretty regular, but they are definitely not needed since we have a nice feature in the C-sharp language that handles this, uh, are comments that are used to, uh, like, as position markers. And position markers are these comments that say, like, fields, and then have all the fields below them, and then a comment that says functions, and all functions are below them. So these comments... Uh, place markers in the source file um, where certain code resides. But in C-sharp, we have things called regions. And if you really want to use these kind of markers, wrap the code in regions and just remove the comments, uh, since this is an uh, accepted language feature. But just make sure that by adding these regions, you do not make the class too big and have too many responsibilities. And a common problem with classes that have regions is that they do not comply to the S in solid, the single responsibility principle. The single responsibility principle says that a class should only have one reason to change, which may sound strange considering the principle says nothing about change. But what Uncle Bob meant with the single responsibility principle is that it should have only responsibilities to one stakeholder. A simple example would be a class that talks both to the web and the local database. The class has two reasons to change now. When something on the website of things changes, it needs to change. And if something in the database changes, it needs to change as well. But yeah, enough about the single responsibility principle. The SOLID acronym is worthy of its own podcast. And if you are really interested at this point, uh, I wrote a blog series about SOLID before. So uh, I will put a link about that in the show notes if you want to read it. And the next kind of comment is very unusual uh, and actually pretty funny. Um, and uh, I've never ever seen this in code before. And uh, Uncle Bob says there are comments that describe uh, closing brackets. And if I never read this book, I would not have thought it this was even a thing. So closing bracket comments are comments that mark the end of an if, while, or for each, or a for loop, or a try-catch block, for example. So you would add a comment that says if after the closing bracket of the if statements. And I mean, wow, that's pretty amazing, right? I guess that's really old school, right? And I've really never ever seen this in a code base I've worked on and if you have seen this uh, please let me know I'm really curious if you've seen this in a C sharp or uh, like a unity uh, project before that would be amazing right and then there is the mother of all bad comments and that is commented out code and I agree with Uncle Bob on this one and it is the worst kind of comment you can ever find in a production system and why well Commented out code can 
always be removed. It will probably only spread confusion and clutter up some source files. But people will say, well, I might need that code in the future. And then I tell them it's in Git and well, I delete it. And when I see a comment in code in a file, uh, I don't read it, I just delete it as soon as I can. I mean, it's not being run at the moment and thus it has no value at all. And if you need it, search for it in Git. And another aspect of why commented code is bad is that when you refactor the code, you will probably not refactor the code in the comment and thus it is broken anyway. I mean, when I use some automated refactorings like extract function or class or interface or rename, I'm not going to check uh, what code is being touched in the code base. I trust the tooling that it works and run my tests if there are any. And I'll see the changes in Git when I check my code in. But if there's comments around my refactored code, I will remove it before I commit and check it in. So commented out goes is an abomination and you should always try to destroy that uh, uh, that commented code as soon as you can and keep your code clean. Now, do I ever comment code? Well, yes, of course I do, but I will never merge the commented code into the developer or master branches. So in your working branch, which is for you personally, you can comment code and keep it in there for the time being. But when you check the code in and merge it, you should remove the commented code. So again, when you see commented code deleted, it's in Git anyway. And next are comments that contain HTML code for like generation purposes. Please don't do this. These comments are worthless since they are darn unreadable to read in your IDE. And I guess that some companies have policies around this, but I think these policies have to change. But policies can't be changed, you might say. And my response would be that policies are written by human beings. Human beings have the capacity to change and thus the policies can change as well, right? But I get that sometimes they won't and you are stuck with these horrible HTML comments. And I'm not sure there's like an IDE feature or plugin uh, that can draw these HTML uh, stuff in different colors and highlighting the most important things for a programmer. Um, if there are none, uh, well, hey, plugin writers, please give us some support for this, right? And the last type of comment Uncle Bob describes are comments that provide far too much information. And trust me, I've seen this before where I, uh, where like the entire Wikipedia page was pasted into the code to describe an AES encryption algorithm. Please, I mean, remove it and just say it's an AES algorithm uh, that is it's used there. You can probably find out just by reading the class name, right? So if you need information about AES encryption, just I'll Google it myself and see what the heck is going on. I mean, many of you will agree with this on me. Um, and if you're not, just let me know. But um, what would you like to prefer in these comments? Would you like have the entire uh, encryption uh, algorithm in there in a comment. I mean, just a simple comment stating that it's used is more than enough, right? So we have now finally covered the fourth chapter of the Clean Code Book. And I know this is a long discussion dedicated to comments. Uh, it may be a bit boring, right? But it's really valuable information, I think. 
And I mean, comments can be a big form of clutter and misinformation in the code and will impact the cleanliness. Uh, so I hope I presented this information in a, in a nice manner and that you learn something from it. And the next chapter we're going to dive into is aimed towards more aesthetic things in code and not so much about implementation details. And it's about formatting. Now, why would formatting be impro uh, important? Well, C-sharp code, or well, imperative code for that matter, is always formatted and structured in the same way. If you divert from that formatting, your code will look weird and uh, or it has not been given much attention, right? And a simple example I can give you is from like an applicant that was applying for a senior position. But when, uh, the code he sent in uh, for us to check out was formatted horribly, like all indents, indentation were all over the place and the code did just not read well. Now, someone applying for a senior position should have known this, right? He's supposed to be senior for a reason, right? Um, so yeah, we had to turn the guy down, sadly enough for him. And we gave him the advice to carefully format the code to match the best practices in the industry. So, well, horrible editing can cost you a job. And I guess that's something you can learn from this story. So the next chapter in the Clean Code book will teach you some of these best practices. As with some other content in the book, some of the parts are dated and I'll describe them when I reach these topics. Um, what then does Uncle Bob say about why formatting is important? Well, he says that when people look under the hood, you want them to be impressed by what they see, right? It's the same when you pop the hood of your car and you want to people to be impressed by the state of the engine. You don't want them to like frown their eyebrows and look away in disgust. And we want them to be amazed by what they see and start throwing flowers and gifts or whatever. Um, they want to be struck by orderliness. So you should choose a formatting style that is applied consistently across all of your code and preferably use like a tool for it. And our IDEs have support for this out of the box. And the first thing I do when I uh, open a file in Rider is smack that control alt L uh, for code formatting. Um, but you could also choose to hook like uh, a linter up in your continuous integration pro uh, process or something. And yeah, a linter is a piece of code that just formats your code uh, uh, according to a certain set of rules. And a simple example is like a JSON linter that will indent everything properly. Uh, you've probably uh, used a JSON linter before, right? Um, so yeah, formatting is really important and code formatting is about communication. I mean, if you smack all code down in one line, the compiler will be perfectly happy to swallow it and compile it down to intermediate language and in the end machine code. So the compiler does not care about uh, line breaks, just semicolons, right? Uh, so formatting is about readability and communication, which is very important to you as a professional game developer. Maybe you always thought that getting shit working was your job, but I hope after all this talking about uh, functions and naming and comments, you start to understand that making things readable and communication is also a very big part of your job. 
maybe even more so than getting things working. So Uncle Bob starts with the concept of vertical formatting, which is directly related to the size of a file. And let's just start by saying that probably everyone gets annoyed instantly when they see very, very large class files. And some might say like a thousand line file is far too long, while others don't really care about it and start to get annoyed at the point when a file is like 5,000 lines, for example. And me uh, personally, uh, I like files or classes for that matter uh, as small as possible. And I would consider a 500 line class uh, very, very large. And yes, I might have a handful of these large classes, quote unquote, in my code base for things that aren't worth separating, like some kind of service classes. Although I would probably extract their functionality out in some use case-like classes uh, most of the time anyway. And yeah, use case classes are a concept from Clean Architecture, uh, also an Uncle Bob book. And use cases are wrapper objects for application-independent business code. So use cases are often referred to as interactors in clean architectures, uh, as classes that embed entire features or requirements, like create order. Um, the, the concept of these types of classes are taken from a book called Object-Oriented Software Engineering by Ivar Jacobson and it's subtitled uh, a use case driven approach and it's a true classic in software design and development and surely a must read to anyone who wants to take their skills to another level and i also wrote a review of this book on my blog um, and i'll put it in the show notes as well uh but yeah sorry i again went off to a little tangent right there but yeah a file should be at most like 500 lines long and these classes should be really, really rare. I can't really put a number on it since zero large classes is the best, of course. Uh, so maybe try to keep the number as close to zero as possible, right? Then another thing, since we are talking about C Sharp here and all functionality is wrapped in classes, uh, I'll always, and I mean, there should never be more than one class in a file. So don't make one source file that contains like three classes. And in Unity's case, if you put multiple class declarations in a file that derive from Mono behavior, you won't be able to add them to your gain objects since Unity has not generated .meta files for them. Same goes for when your class name differs from the file name. So keep an eye out for that as well. Next, Uncle Bob addresses the newspaper metaphor again. And I explained this in the previous episode a bit, but I'll do it again here quickly. The newspaper metaphor is the concept that your class should begin at a high level of abstraction. And the further down you read the class, the lower the level of abstraction becomes. This way, at the top of your file, you can quickly find out what the class is about. And if you need to know the details, you can read further. And this correlates how newspaper articles are written. <clears throat> An article always starts with a catchy title and some abstract with high-level information. Uh, while you're reading this article, more and more details are given until you reach the end. This is polite, right? You can stop reading until you are bored and still get some valuable information. Classes need to be structured the same way as well. It's polite to your colleagues to write classes this way. And we probably all have seen classes that jump all over the place. So when you need to read things, you need to scroll up and down constantly. 
well, so what do you do? Uh, well, split the file in multiple windows and dock them in your IDE. Or maybe copy and paste method calls around so you can order them. The same goes for files that contain regions for specific concepts in code. This can lead to really unreadable classes as well. So apply regions carefully. Uh, yeah, we discussed this a bit earlier as well. And then Uncle Bob describes the concept of vertical openness between concepts. So what the heck is this? Uh, he states that most code is read from left to right and top to bottom. And he also says that many coding standards have things that separate uh, certain code from each other. So what he means is that you most likely uh, start a class with all the using statements. Then there's like a white line and maybe a namespace definition and an opening bracket below it. Next, a class definition and again an opening bracket. Uh, next, uh, a white line and a couple of fields and or properties. Then a right line and maybe a constructor or an awake. So. I think you get it, right? What Uncle Bob means is that these white lines and brackets on the new line are there for a reason. When you remove these empty lines, the code becomes too crammed together and unreadable. Uh, it will compile perfectly fine, but for human eyes it is really horrible to read. And I think I often see is if statements on a single line, for example. And I've done this many times as well, and you probably did also and you know just an if statement without brackets on a single line as a simple card at the top of your code can be quite helpful but i found that over the years that putting this in two lines is better it makes reviewing code much easier for example i mean sometimes when you have too many concepts on a single line you can create like an optical illusion of some weird conditions and function calls right so you might not spot a bug or simply a fault in requirements so my advice is to make like if statements at least two lines one for the condition and the second for the body of the if statement so I went on a little tangent again, but still, uh, it was kind of a segue into the next topic in the book, which is what Uncle Bob calls vertical density. And vertical density means that the code uh, that is associated with each other that should coincide with each other. And a simple example for this would be if you have a nice compact little lambda function, which can be one line, but instead you spread it across multiple lines. If the line belongs to the same concept, try to make it compact and yet readable. It's a bit like getters and setters in C sharp, right? We can write them out like true encapsulated fields, or we can rely on the compiler to do it for us and just generate these auto properties. And I think nowadays you will most likely see auto properties in C sharp and you will no longer see these large, clunky, bulky, encapsulated fields written out. But if you are a Java programmer, like Uncle Bob is in the book, then you will still need to write this cumbersome getter and setters logic all the time because there's no support in Java for auto properties. And then next up is the concept of vertical distance. And vertical distance refers to the distance between the usage of concepts. And Uncle Bob says that you should define or declare variables wherever you use them. 
So don't write like a 100 line function, put some variable declarations at the top and then use them only at like the last line of the function. Just move the fields down to the part where you use them. And there might be some exceptions like declaring variables just outside a try catch block, for example. So variables might seem unrelated uh, and sometimes you need to do that. But in our previous episode, we talked about how we should keep functions small. And also, if you are working within a try catch block, you should keep the body of the try catch block as short as you can. So if you do that, the vertical distance between concepts shall never be large. And then we all probably know about always declaring your instance variables and properties at the top of your file. I mean, this is a greatly accepted standard, right? Always are variables and fields declared at the top of a file. If someone diverts from this and declares fields and at random positions within a file, like between functions, you quickly notice and find that the reliability suffers. And Uncle Bob has a rule for function declarations and ordering, and he says that functions that are related to each other should be close to one another. With this, he refers to the newspaper metaphor again. What he means is that you might have like a publicly exposed function, then a couple of private functions that are called within the public function, and after these private functions, another public function might be defined, followed by a bunch of private functions that are called from within the second public function. Wow, that might sound weird. But yeah, this way you can easily read the class. This also refers to the concept of vertical ordering, where we want functions to be declared in the order as they are called, so you don't end up jumping all over the place while reading it. And we glanced a bit about this topic already. And the last concept of vertical formatting Uncle Bob talks about in the book is called conceptual affinity. And this refers to some logic really wanting to be close to each other. And that might sound weird, I think. I mean, how can code want such a thing, right? Um, what he means is that there might be functions that conceptually refer to the same things or work with similar concepts. So if you have a class called player with a lot of functions for moving, jumping and shooting, group together the functions that have to do with moving, jumping and shooting closely. Don't have like a function that moves the player left, then a function that has to do with shooting, and next does some function that does some jumping logic, and then another couple that have to do with moving again. Group functions close to each other if they share the same concepts. So, all right, we have discussed everything Uncle Bob has to say about vertical formatting. We talked about why vertical formatting is important and why it should follow a newspaper style of writing and concepts. We discussed vertical openness, density, distance, ordering, and lastly, conceptual affinity. But there's also horizontal formatting, of course. And horizontal formatting mostly refers to the length of lines in a class. And we all know that the age-old advice goes that lines should never be longer than your screen is wide, which was about 80 characters historically. And since we nowadays have very high-resolution curved widescreen monitors, you will probably have seen 300 character lines uh, or more. It fits the screen, right? Well, let me tell you this. We humans have been conditioned 
to use computers in a top-down manner. I mean, we have scroll wheels on our mice that scroll up and down. And yeah, I know, if you have somewhat of a nice mouse, you can like shift right and left with your scroll wheel as well. But generally, we vertically scroll, not horizontally. So making a developer scroll left and right because you were too lazy to properly format the code is, well, rude. And personally, most of the time, I won't scroll right and just refactor the code to multiple lines and make it fit better. And, well, yeah, this sucks, to be honest, because I might not have to do anything with that particular piece of code. I might just be reading it to get the grasp on the concept, right? But now I feel driven to refactor it and just make it fit in my, my screen. So try to keep lines short. And I know there can be edge cases where you will reach, like, a hundred or maybe a hundred and twenty characters and I think this is acceptable but don't go down the deep end and make lines of like 300 characters long. So Uncle Bob has some advice to share about horizontal formatting as well and it starts off by saying he analyzed some code bases for the length and found that generally it is about 80 lines long which the age-old rules suggest. And Uncle Bob says that he has set his own character limit in his IDE to like 120, because there's always edge cases. And I guess, yeah, this is fine. Although I've tried this particular limit and it can sometimes cause some awkward formatting when you have like a long class with long function names and maybe some generic parameters in there. So setting a hard limit for 120 uh, characters might be cruel in some cases, since you really need to format the code weirdly in these specific cases. Um, but Uncle Boss' first advice for horizontal formatting is the concept of openness and density again. We discussed this for vertical alignment as well, and where openness refers to new or empty lines in vertical formatting, a simple space will help formatting in horizontally. Uh, so you can add spaces to your lines to separate concepts. And a simple example is like adding a space between operators in a mathematical formula, or spaces be between uh, conditional arguments and if statements, or even parameters in if functions. I mean, they are separated by a comma with an additional white space behind the comma, right? And I think our IDEs do this out of the box, but still, um, having these horizontal uh, formatting really promotes readability. And horizontal density refers to basically the same thing as vertical density as well. And that is that code that is associated with each other should reside with together. Um, so try to keep mathematical formulas on a single line. And the same goes for conditions and function arguments. Although in some cases, I will put certain if statements or function calls on multiple lines, for example, if you call a function that requires a couple of arguments and you run some like magical link query directly to pass the, its result into the function, sometimes these things can become quite long. And yes, we should probably first make uh, like a local variable to capture the result of that link query and pass that variable into the function to reduce the length of the line, right? Uh, this way you don't need to put things on multiple lines, but yeah, Sometimes uh, formatting it on multiple lines in really weird edge cases can really promote its readability. 
And then a topic that brings back some memories to me personally is horizontal alignment. And I think we have all seen this code that was really nicely uh, tabbed or spaces for that matter and everywhere. So access modifiers for types and names were tabbed out evenly. However, this is far from the industry standard since there should not be horizontal alignment in a source file. Text should be compact and dense, yet readable. And I said I remember this quite fondly, and what I meant was that I was helping or like accompanying an intern, and he would always horizontally align his code with tabs, so every single time I helped him with some things, my muscle memory would kick in and would hit Ctrl-Alt-L in Rider, which, well, reformats the code, and his entire class layout would change. And I could undo that action, but I tried to convince him that his formatting is different from the best practices, and in C-sharp or at least. And I think by the end of his internship, he didn't format his code horizontally anymore. Um, he was a great intern who took his advice gladly and did not get, well, get offended, quote-unquote, when I criticized his code. And we all probably know people who simply cannot take feedback if it's not what they want to hear. And it may be, it, the feedback might even not be negative. I mean, I guess that this is some advice to any juniors that are listening. Try not to take things personally. Try to carefully consider feedback and realize that people criticize code, not the person who wrote it. Well, at least that's what they should do. They should not criticize the person, in my opinion. But yeah, um, the next topic to discuss for horizontal formatting is, of course, indenting. And we talked about this in the previous podcast as well, but that was more about structure and functions, and that we should try to keep the level of indenting to one. But in this chapter, indenting is more about readability. Imagine if all code in a source file would not be indented and everything would be crammed from the beginning of each line. I even needed to adjust myself when I wrote some like backend logic where I use a newer version of .NET where you can declare namespaces without the brackets and the main or program class without the like, class definition. So use indenting to indicate class and function bodies, etc. I think this advice is a bit dated since our IDEs enforce these things automatically, but still, it's some good advice because it really matters. Remember, I told you the story of the guy who was applying for the senior position who did not have indenting, and it just indenting was all over the place, like three times as much, or maybe at the beginning of a line, just everywhere. And then he has another piece of advice, and that is not to use dummy scopes without braces. But what the hell is a dummy scope? Well, a dummy scope exists when you have, for example, a while loop without a body wrapped by brackets, but just a simple semicolon. So the while loop is a guard in the code, but does not have a body that is executed each iteration of the loop. I don't think that I've ever seen this in C-sharp code in Unity, and I mean, I've seen some clever usages of while loops, but I've not seen this used in this in, in this manner. I mean, why would you use a while loop for this? Uh, I think there's better language level constructs to delay or pause your code, but then again, the book is kind of old, right? And 
it's mostly about Java and well, Java folks might miss some of our awesome C-sharp or .NET features, right? And then very lastly, Uncle Bob ends this chapter with what I think is the best advice of this chapter and that is to make rules about formatting so that every person in the team follows the same rules. And I mean, if everyone on the team formats the code differently, it's going to be a cesspool of weird code, right? And luckily, we can create these rules and share these settings among the team. So for example, in uh, JetBains Rider, we can export the settings uh, file and share it among the team. You can even create like a dedicated Git repo where you host these settings and you just connect to it and get the latest ones. So every member on the team can use the same settings and then you can avoid meaningless discussions about formatting. You just hit Ctrl-Alt-L in Rider and the code gets formatted instantly. And as I said before, muscle memory will kick in really quickly. So there you have it, the next two chapters of the Clean Codebook. And this time we have looked at chapter 4, Comments, and chapter 5, Formatting. And me, seeing a pattern here, will probably discuss the next two chapters in the next podcast and i hope the information given in this podcast is clear enough since i get that sometimes i explain things about source code without showing an example but i gave it my best try and i hope the information landed well enough and if it didn't please let me know so i can maybe add some examples in the show notes or something or maybe uh, an additional podcast to explain things further and I hope you join me on the next podcast and please remember to rate this podcast on your favorite platform and leave me some feedback if you like. And if you want to support the podcast, please consider using the affiliate link in the show notes if it will ever get approved. It still hasn't and it's still pending, but yeah. All right. Um, So yeah, see you next time. And as always, remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.